If you've been told to pull up your socks, then make sure it's a pair of TNT socks. The TNT shop is now open at tntradio.live. Unleashing the Beast. Mark Morano is unleashed on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome to Unleashed. Mark Morano here on TNT Radio with the second to the last show to close out 2023. And we have a great guest who will be with us after the first commercial break. Uh, we are going to be joined by Jeffrey Sachs, that's S-A-C-K-S, not the Columbia University professor, but the author of The Decline and Decay of the U.S. Constitutional Order, How the American Experiment is Entering into a Dangerous Point in History and What It Must Do to Survive. So we're going to be talking about all of the threats to our liberty uh, and America to, with Jeffrey Sachs after the first break. Urge you to stay on. He's a 20-year veteran of the U.S. Army. And I think he's got a lot to say, may even have a future in politics. All right. In other news, most people get to relax during the holidays. But for some reason, uh, a lot of the cable news shows from One America to Fox News decide it's time. Hey, it's a slow news week. Let's talk about climate and the environment, which is kind of silly. But they talk about it other times as well. But uh, I ended up getting booked for three Fox News shows in with like 18 hours. Uh, anyway, I did uh, Jesse Waters primetime and I did um, the bottom line on Fox Business, all about what Al Gore is up to this week. Uh, and I wanted to have the clip, but unfortunately I don't. Al Gore, adopt the left's climate agenda or else there will be one million climate refugees. There's like Dr. Evil. One million, one, I'm sorry, one billion, one billion climate refugees. This is what Al Gore is now pushing uh, in an interview with CNN. This is sort of the end of the year wrap up. What what can we do to save the planet post the UN climate meeting? And by the way, it's been roundly. Remember I celebrated here with the graffiti and all the, the noisemakers, the failure of that summit has been roundly criticized. Now, you know, this was, this has happens on some of the summits where they're over. They always have to declare a success because the delegates would feel worthless when they're packing up and leaving the exotic locale. This time, of course, was Dubai, United Arab Emirates. But they always declare success. But you can usually tell within 24 to 48 hours after all the creeping. And then within two or three days, they pretty much declared this a failure. And even Al Gore is worried about it. John Kerry is worried about it. They didn't advance their agenda, at least the stated UN agenda. As I said uh, prior, previously on the show, it really wasn't the UN uh, climate conference, the conference of parties that people were worried about. It was what happened before, 200 medical journals urging the World Health Organization and the United Nations to literally declare climate change a public health threat. And that is the, the COVID template. That's the model they want to use. There'll be a little less, um, I mean, there'll be a lot less overt. And it's not going to be like lockdown, COVID style, stay at home order. But they're going to insert all sorts of little, little things into our society. And they can do it through wartime powers as well, through public health measures, whether, uh, you know, restricting new gas stations, putting higher miles per gallon, limiting airline flights, hidden taxes, anything they can do to make, to ration transportation, planes, trains, automobiles, 
uh, and also to ration agriculture, which they're going after. And again, if agriculture is a bigger threat, if cow emissions alone are a bigger threat than all the transportation combined, you can imagine the wartime powers and the public health powers that they can do to restrict uh, animal livestock emissions. So that's what we're dealing with. So anyway, that was the thing. So Al Gore goes on CNN this past week, right after Christmas. And he suggested that a billion people will become climate refugees on our southern border. Well, he didn't say southern border specifically, but he said a climate refugees around the world. If the world does not adopt and adhere to the UN Paris 1.5 degrees Celsius temperature goals, which are all based in science. And I, I think I've done this on the show before. They're literally made from thin air. I interviewed Dr. Uh, Richard Toll uh, about these goals. And actually the ClimateGate email showed you from from um, 2010, that top UN scientist, Phil Jones, admitted that there's no science to support these temperature goals. They're just political goals so people have something to rally around. Gore says, quote, we still have the ability to seize control of our destiny. In other words, if we pass the right laws and enable the right bureaucrats and give up our freedoms, we can save our destiny and save the planet. We can stop the temperature from rising. We can stop the seas from rising. We can stop the storms. We can stop the clouds. This is what they believe. This is doomsday preacher stuff. Gore continues, quote, if we stop adding to the overburden of these greenhouse gas pollutants in the sky, if we reach what they call true net zero and stop adding the heat trapping capacity up there, the temperatures will stop going up right away. And if we stay at true net zero, half the human-caused greenhouse pollution will fall out of the atmosphere in as little as 25 to 30 years. Okay. He's got this whole fantasy, first of all, about how many Hiroshima, Nagasaki, atomic bombs are going off in the atmosphere. We're releasing them every day. Remember, human breath is a greenhouse gas. Carbon dioxide uh, and... Um, methane and nitrous oxide. We did the study that was in the journal PLOS last week. Literally human breath is now contributing to warming. And remember, Africans contribute more than Asians. Women contribute more heating agents in their breath compared to men. It also includes human flatulence. And as I mentioned, Scientific American also pointed out human pee is a pollution problem from the nitrous oxide from consuming too much meat. And that's causing warming. So our flatulence uh, on that end, our, our urine, and our breath are all destroying the planet. So Al Gore is claiming, first of all, net zero. I mean, this is the idea that we're going to be eliminating all of our uh, all of the CO2 emissions and get into a situation where solar and wind are going to just be magically, just rapidly taking over. It's cheaper. Gore went on in this interview about how cheap uh, fossil, uh, solar and wind and renewable energy were. They're just, they're just ready to take over. You know, we're going to be flying on renewable. You'll be driving on renewable. It's complete fantasy. A hundred years ago, 80% of our energy came from fossil fuels. Today, 80% of our energy comes from fossil fuels. And they're talking about a transition, unlike any you know gender transition anyone's ever attempted. It's uh, the equivalent of a cross-species transition uh, in terms of the, uh, the insanity and the timescales in which they're talking about here. Okay. Gore goes on, he said, half the human pollution will fall out of the atmosphere in as little as 25 to 30 years. Now, that's an interesting thing. They're saying that we'll feel the temperature effect. Now, this is assuming, number one, that carbon dioxide is a control knob of the climate, that if we just stop emitting it, it's going to just magically, you know, we're going we're gonna to just feel the storms less. 
no science to support that. It's wild speculation. And CO2 is not the control knob. And the geologic history of the earth tells us that over and over. Ice core data tells us that over and over. Government charts tell us that from NOAA, which I have on my website before. They're probably going to end up pulling some of these charts down. But anyway, he says half the greenhouse pollution will, CO2 will fall out of the atmosphere in as little as 20 to 30 years. This is another thing where they claim somehow imagine if the world just stopped emitting industrial CO2 and anything to do with human activity. Uh, they're saying that it would half of that. In other words, if our, I'm assuming he's saying if he's talking specifically, he might be talking about other greenhouse gases combined like nitrous oxide, like methane will fall out of the atmosphere, but 20 to 30 years, 25 to 30 years, is he saying we're at what, 420 parts per million carbon dioxide? Is that gonna fall to 200, or, you know, half of that increase? He was just talking about the human anyways. He's unclear there. He's had some papers, I've seen some of his emails, and there was a study, and I've seen scientists talk about this, but I think it's wild speculation, and they're just, you know, it's just a little, this is a side point. Anyway, okay. Gore said that solar and wind electricity were the solutions of the so-called climate crisis. He made no mention of nuclear energy, of course. We can do this if we just overcome the greed and political power of the big fossil fuel polluters who've been trying to control the process. We have to make a decision to get past fossil fuels and start accelerating renewable inefficiency. Okay. First of all, all the big fossil fuel companies from Exxon to Chevron, they're all in on the green agenda. They support the UN Paris Agreement. They support climate compliance regulations. They support higher cost of business. Why? Because it crushes their medium and small competitors who don't have the best lawyers, don't have the best lobbyists. And the bigger companies can then soak up and buy up all the smaller companies. It's the same reason big agribusiness supports the climate agenda and all these regulations because they can crush the family farmers who can't support the regulations. This is econ or great reset econo economics one so the idea that the big fossil fuel polluters are stopping this, you know, the big fossil fuel Exxon gave 100 million to Stanford University, the natural gas industry gave 30 million, almost 30 million to the Sierra Club to go against coal. They spend money, they do all the greenwashing, they do all the virtue signaling. Um, I think it's actually the the people around the world would not tolerate a fossil free reduction or a fossil free world because the quality of life would degrade. Now, having said that, I you know, especially looking at the world through the lens of a great reset, I do believe that you know, fossil fuel interests with billions of dollars, you want to keep them away from the regulatory agencies and you want to keep a wall between it the same way you want to keep big pharma away from the FDA and the and National Institute of Health and the Centers for Disease Control and our public health bureaucracy, to the extent that the public health bureaucracy should even exist. We had a guest on here, and I'd like to have him back on talking about for the abolishment of the public health bureaucracy. But it's just a, it's a myth. And the idea that anyone, you know, climate deniers are funded, that's laughable in and of itself. I'm almost completely, my parent organization, CFAX, was completely funded by individual donations of people through the old-fashioned direct mail and no no fossil fuel corporate oil gas is going to give me a cent uh because they don't like my message it's anti-corporate it's anti-monopoly it's anti uh all the things that they try to virtue signal to the greens about they'd have nothing to do with me okay Gore continuing, the scientists who warned us of these mega storms, droughts and ice melting, sea level rising, storms getting stronger, tropical disease, they were dead right when they warned us. So we need to pay more attention to them. First of all, everything he just mentioned, 
in terms of droughts, floods, hurricanes, storms, tornadoes, wildfires, even the UN reports admit they're not increasing on climate timescales, that they're actually um, either no rise or declining on 30, 50, 100 years. In terms of ice melting, well, we've had a NASA study showing Antarctica is gaining ice. And yes, the Arctic has lost sea ice since the high point of the measurements began in 1979, which was at the height of the global cooling scare coming ice age scare. So yeah, we've lost ice in the Arctic since the late 1970s. We're either static or maybe possibly gained some in Antarctic. And there are areas of the Antarctic that are melting, like West Antarctica Peninsula, but there are also undersea volcanoes in those areas. But in terms of the total ice mass balance, it's either unclear or studies have shown it's either gaining ice in terms of that. Now, you'll see people come out and say, oh, well, if it melts, we'll have a 20-foot sea level rise. Yeah, well, if the sun blows up, we'll all die. You know, that's that's just silliness. There's nothing to support that. Anyway. So what Al Gore is warning about are these climate refugees. So I went on uh, Fox News and here's what I did. I pulled up this old 2013 Los Angeles Times article, and this is important. It was written by climate activist Bill McKibben. What's interesting is they're trying to scare us now because of this invasion of uh, illegal aliens on the Southern, illegal immigrants on the Southern border from Mexico into the US. And we're not talking Mexicans. We're not even talking Central Americans. We're talking all countries from people from all over the world or just it's a free for all through our southern border at the moment by the worst in our nation's history in terms of uh, unmonitored border with anyone getting in. So even the people like Al Gore are trying to capitalize and scare us. Well, there's going to be more illegal immigration because there'll be climate migrants, climate immigrants. Now, first of all, the only immigrants you end up getting are because of government bad policies. And that's true in California, where the state, everyone's exiting in droves because of the COVID lockdowns. That's true why Florida is gaining all these people from all over the country because they were one of the freest. That's also why Texas is gaining people. They follow their foot in terms of freedom. If you look at um, what happened even in uh, all these other nations, when you have droughts uh, you know, that are caused and they blame, they try to blame it on climate change, they're natural cycle droughts. But when you have political famines, you get huge refugees. The greatest thing you can do to prevent that kind of refugees at Al Gore's are not climate refugees, they're economic refugees, they're bad government refugees, is to have more prosperity for people around the globe. And you don't do that through socialist dictators and climate slush funds and wealthy nations handing out rations to the poor nations so that they can be good stewards of the environment. Anyway, but it's ironic that because the climate activists love illegal immigration. The LA Times urged more illegal immigration in 2013 to stop, this is a quote, to stop white America from pulling the lever for climate deniers. Bill McKibben urged immigration so Latinos could replace white Americans' voting impact. You heard the replacement theory? Well, they're openly talking about it in the pages of the LA Times. Quote, election after election, native-born citizens pull the lever for climate deniers in the US. By contrast, 77% of Latino voters think climate change is already happening. So they want the border wide open. They want as many illegal immigrants to come. They want to put them on government programs and they want to count on them being disgusted with Republicans' climate denial positions that they'll vote them out of office. Brings a smile to their face. And if you recall a few years ago, our vice president, Camilla Harris, was looking for the root causes of illegal immigration. And what do you think she found? Climate change as one of the root causes. So it's, um, you know, 
you look what happened in Sri Lanka when they did the impose the climate agenda. That's how you get real immigration. Of course, you had immigration over the presidential palace. Look at what they did in the Netherlands with the farmers in the Netherlands. They they had all those uh, climate compliance costs on the farms threatening to shut down 10,000 plus small family run generational farms. And those farmers would have been displaced. They would have been climate refugees, according to Al Gore. No, they have climate policy refugees. But luckily, the farmers fought back. They formed their own political party, the BBB, and no, not Build Back Better. Can't remember what the BBB stands for at the moment, but that's the name of their coalition in the Netherlands. And they're now fighting this, and they've halted these climate compliance costs farm for the present, for the temporarily. We don't know how far that is going to continue. Anyway, um, and then the other thing that came out this week, uh, the UN just, they're telling us the, the quiet parts out loud. Climate change provokes urgent action on food systems everywhere. It can no longer be a case of business as usual when it comes to climate change. This is the UK Telegraph promoting that idea. And then we also had Reuters News this week, December 23rd, right before Christmas, sustainably transform food systems, UN's COP28 food and agriculture targets. Quote, the way we produce and eat foods causes 30% of world greenhouse gas emissions. So they're pushing these targets. And guess who's behind it? Not only is the UN behind it, who else would be behind this? Oh, Reuters has the answer. Funding from Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, Earth Fund. Bah, wah, wah. Jeff Bezos, by the way, according to the recent, most recent articles I see, is poised to overtake uh, Bill Gates as America's single largest farmland owner, or he's right in the running. Who would have thought that the founder of Amazon and the owner of the Washington Post rag is now gobbling up farmland, modeling himself after Bill Gates. Hey, at least we don't have a Chinese-owned land uh, farmland monopoly like uh, Politico worried about a few years ago. Who would you rather have own American farmland? China? Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates. Hmm. I think I'd vote China in that scenario. Just like I said, if I was an African leader and I had Biden administration officials coming to my country to tell me that I had to take rations from the wealthy nations to, you know, and um, and keep my people poor and limit development and put solar panels on huts made of dung, or have China come and they say, we'll loan you the money, which you'll never be able to pay back, but we'll own your country eventually, but we'll build airports, infrastructure. We're gonna build roads, highways, hospital. We're gonna electrify, we're gonna develop, we're gonna bring jobs, we're gonna bring, it's a no brainer. All these African leaders are going to be picking China, 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 China over the West, who's like, you can't make the same mistakes we did. You got to keep your development limited. You guys are earth friendly. And by the way, we'll buy up your land at, at fire sale prices with our carbon offsets because the white wealthy people in Europe and the US feel guilty about our private jets. So we're going to buy up 20% of land in each of your African countries on the continent. That's the world in which we live. All right, enough of this. That was my update here. Uh, I hope to do a year-end sort of retrospective tomorrow with some fun stories. We will be back. Uh, this is Unleashed with Mark Morano. We'll be joined by Jeffrey Sachs, 20-year veteran of the U.S. Army, potential political future, and he wrote the book, The Decline and Decay of the U.S. Constitutional Order, How the American Experiment is Entering into a Dangerous Point in History. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano. Be right back after these messages. Jeremy now on TNT Radio. Being South African, I'm, I know the situation and it's incredibly dire. Basically, our farmers 
mostly white, have been under attack for years and years and years. And when I say attack, I mean that physically, don't I? Yes. Um, since the dawn of democracy in South Africa, since 1994, we had an average of uh, one farm attack every second day. Um, so it averages around uh, 175 to 190 farm attacks every year. And we had a farm murder on average every fifth day. Um, but over the last few months, both those numbers have picked up. Murders in other sectors of society are not accompanied by the same levels of brutality and torture as you will find in farm murders. Jeremy Nell on today's News Talk TNT Radio. People might tell you that Lyme doesn't kill people, but we are losing people. People disappear from their lives. One of the scariest things that I had to deal with was uh, memory loss. Not just like I don't remember what I did last week, but like I forgot all the words to my own songs. I remember going to my primary care physician and he was like, you are 100% healthy, there's nothing wrong with you. And my response was, that's impossible, I'm dying. I wasn't working. I had all of these hospital bills. We had to move out of our home and move into my parents' basement. I just wish I could have truly been present in those big moments, you know, when she took her first steps or, you know, her first day of preschool. Lyme is such a thief and it goes undetected because no one is looking for it. For more information and prevention tips, go to projectlime.org. Internet. Internet. A stream online. TNTradio.live. Today's News Talk Radio. TNT. Welcome back. We're back now with author Jeffrey Sachs, a U.S. Army veteran and author of the new book, The Decline and Decay of U.S. Constitutional Order, How the American Experiment is Entering a Dangerous Point in History and What It Must Do to Survive. Welcome to Unleash with Mark Morano, Jeffrey. Hey, Mark. Uh, good to be with you and your listeners. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, uh, it's exciting. Uh have someone here to die. Here we are at the end of 2023, and your book is about the decay, uh, a dangerous point in history, and how the American experiment is, you know, essentially in decline and decay. Uh, first, tell us a little bit about yourself. What led you to write this book, and what's your background? And then let's we'll go through and lay out all the problems with America and and how we could go about fixing them. So first of all, who is Jeffrey Sachs? Who are yeah. what's your background? I think we can talk about. <laughs> I think we can talk a, a whole year on the problems that we're facing here. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so I spent uh, 20 years, uh, the last 20 years in the United States Army, uh, retired as a lieutenant colonel, uh, multiple deployments. Um, but the book, you know, I wrote that when I was getting my second master's at Johns Hopkins. And at that time, uh, you know, we're looking at the the overall constitutional framework and the constitutional structure. And, you know, it was really on American exceptionalism. Uh, so what the book does is it's really a comparative analysis of our constitutional republic versus uh, authoritarian regimes and, and other type of uh, um, institutions and, and uh, government frameworks. So it does a comparison, you know, and I get into uh, the rule of law, I get into separation of powers and into our election systems. And I touch a little bit on the 2020 election. And uh, finally, uh, I, I end with what is is the most critical and I think will be the most critical thing in 2024 is leadership, public leadership, because everybody has a different role, uh, definition of what a leader is. Um, and I have mine certainly, but that's gonna be critical as we get into 2024. So the book um, is really written for the, the regular uh, average day, hardworking, uh, red-blooded American. 
Um, not for not for the elites, but for those Americans that maybe don't really know paying too much attention to what's going on, or uh, you know they only get one side of the of, of the media. Uh, so it's really for them. Uh, and I've and I've done a lot of book signings, and it's been so wonderful to go out there, especially here in Virginia, to go talk to those those people, just start a dialogue and, and a conversation. That's really what it's about. All right. Well, great. Uh, let's let's talk about the book then, and let's talk about uh, some of the problems. Like, if you look at sort of the 20th century history of the U.S., obviously, we'll start with World War II. We had a huge World War II boom after. The 1950s, very prosperous. U.S. dominated the world, and then the 60s came. And you could argue, you know, you had the cultural war, but you also had a lot more economic problems flaring up. By the 70s, we had, you know, inflation, unemployment, energy shortages. And then, of course, Reagan came in the 80s and restored, but you had the Cold War, then you had the Cold War victory in the 90s. We talked about the peace dividend. By end of Bill Clinton's second term, we had balance with a Republican Congress and a Democrat president, like Bill Clinton, who was sort of a chameleon change at, at whim. We had budget surpluses, low inflation, and we had cheap energy. I remember gas, 75 cents a gallon. And then, of course, 9-11 happens and, you know, it puts us into a whole war on terror and, and we're back to deficits, inflation. And then the financial collapse of 2008 happens. And that, of course, caused major adjustments for Americans. And now, especially after COVID, we're in a situation where the middle class is being crushed. Poor people are relying more and more on government for services, universal basic income. Anyway, in the in the context of that sort of history of the last 80, 80 years of U.S. economy, in terms of economic stuff, where do you see our problems today and how would you fix them? And uh, you, know, I, you can give your own version of the history. That's just my quick boilerplate economic history. Well, oh yeah, that's, that's a great question. I, I think a part of it uh, is really when we got off the gold standard in the 60s, yes. honestly. But listen, our problem today is that we're just spending too much. We're just spending too much. We're $34, $35 trillion in debt. Uh, we're just borrowing money, printing money, and then just just passing the, all these big legislative uh, uh, agenda. And we're just spending too much. And that's causing the inflation. You can almost say that we're in stagflation. You know, we've run the number up so extremely high. And yeah, it's coming down a little bit. Uh, but but you know that that's still way too high. Um, our national debt is really a national security crisis, so that really has to get under control. Uh, stop the spending. Uh, we're, we're too overly regulated. We're, we're you know we need to cut regulation as much as possible. That'll free up uh, some of these businesses. And, and you look at the housing market and everything. You, you cannot buy a house right now. Uh, the American dream is basically dead because the interest rates are extremely uh, astronomical. Um, so one, we address the national debt. You know we, we get. The, the spending under control, um, and then we cut regulation. Uh, so that's really, uh, we'll do a lot. Uh, and then, you know, what I would like to see is, you know, we cut the XL pipeline, you know, we got to start getting that energy, uh, uh, effective energy yeah. policies, and that's going to reduce the gas prices and and basically stabilize the, the supply chains as, as well, because the truckers will be spending less to get all those um, uh, food and 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 uh, the essential needs uh, that will lower the cost um, that, that people are, are seeing in the, in the grocery stores now. So that really is got to get under control immediately. Stop the spending. Yeah, that's the thing. Now, what do you think when they talk about, you mentioned, you touched on energy, you know, that we have this whole net zero agenda. You have the idea of restricting energy of the Los Angeles Times calling for planned blackouts in order to meet climate goals. You have uh, the, yeah, and papers calling for the end of individual air conditioner use in homes and people go to public cooling centers. 
you have uh, all these mandates that are shutting down oil, gas, coal in favor of so-called renewable solar and wind. What would your energy policy be? Can you expand on that a little bit? I mean, I know we're more drilling, but uh, how do we fight this whole agenda? I'm going to support. Yeah, I'm going to support. I'm going to support energy. Now, I'm not against the environment. I'm not against any of that, but it's got to be done smartly. Um, you know, this and, and in pushing pushing this on individual Americans is not the right way to do it because that's just telling you know, the big government saying, "Hey, you're gonna we're gonna mandate this. We're gonna mandate uh, electrical vehicles. We're gonna take away your gas stoves. We're gonna do all that." No, that's that's we got to get out of that business. Number one, you gotta you gotta you gotta fix. You know, if you want if you want an EV cart, by all means, go and do that. Just don't force it on people. Um, but we absolutely got to got to got to drill. And if you want to get into a good energy policy, it's got to be uh, done the right way and get done responsibly uh, in phases per, per se. You know, we can't just you know, the infrastructure right now isn't as good as it, as it is. And that's the piece that needs to be built out first. Uh, but this this uh, flash to bang time from just going all the way to electric, the, yeah. the grid cannot handle that. Um, and so that it's just that is just an infringement on, on uh, people's uh, individual rights. And I'm not I'm not for that at all. Uh, one of the other things with, with transportation, there's a whole movement afoot. Uh, like in France, they're banning short haul flights, two and a half hours or less, to save the planet from global warming. The EU is looking at similar things. Bloomberg News is reporting that climate compliance costs may make may make cheap airfare a thing of the past. And you have a sort of corporate government collusion, if you will, cooperation between these big corporate CEOs pushing this. Uh, and the government unelected bureaucrats. You know, the Biden administration is sort of bypassed democracy, even on meat eating uh, with cows. I mean, the agricultural department, John Kerry as a climate envoy, are going after all this without a vote of Congress. What would you do about that? How would you save, uh, you know, our freedom of movement, and how would you save the American love affair with meat because that's on their target? Well, well, number one, we got to stop uh, having, uh, I, I say, so-called, you know, D.C. established D.C. elites flying all around the world telling everybody <laughs> yeah. that, that there's a climate crisis and, and there's a there's this big climate agenda when they're flying around um, in aircraft. Uh, that doesn't make a lot yeah. of sense to me. And it starts as a regular American it starts to question whether or not what's really what's truly going on here. Uh, is it what Vivek said, uh, Ramasamy, is that is it a big uh, climate hoax, right? <laughs> is it, is it? And yeah. it starts to, you know, question, question a little bit of that, but uh, um, okay. look, look I, I'm, I'm for uh, people having a choice um, and, and freeing up some of this stuff uh, and just taking big government out. Sometimes we need people in DC to just be, a, uh, uh, you know, give them, give them the Heisman a little bit and let, the, let the States run things and let the people decide on things, you know, get big government out there. I believe in limited government. And, and that's, that's really, um, you know, I would like to see leaders in DC just be a firewall um and and get out of that business and and free it up free markets uh what about the assault I, I know i don't know if your book covers this but the free speech angle uh really i think since donald trump's was was elected in 2016 there's been a whole layer of censorship canceling deplatforming with the idea behind it we can't allow another trump to ever happen again um, and then, of course, you have people say, well, these are private companies, but they actually, we now know, at least post-COVID, that Facebook and Instagram and YouTube all work very closely with, with the Biden administration, with public health, uh, in terms of actual naming people. Like, let's get RFK Jr. off of this, and we're on it, and you know, working with the Biden administration. What would you do about that sort of, do you have a policy on the corporate government collusion, limiting our free speech, or do you believe they're private companies and can do whatever they want? It's a, you know, people struggle. I gave it a section 230. 
Okay. Whatever happened to Section 230? That was a, that was a big thing that was coming up. Whatever happened to that? I'm not sure what happened to that. It's like a big monopoly. Um, what, what happened in in the 2020 election with the with uh, social media and and the censorship? We saw the Hunter Biden laptop. You know that to me is completely ridiculous. You know, freedom of speech. It doesn't matter if it's on the internet or you know if you're talking to a neighbor. It doesn't matter. Free speech is free speech. And so uh, Elon Musk, you know, has, has done a lot of great great job on on X. Um, and so we start to see a little bit pushing back and more free space to, to, uh, you know, have a, an open dialogue, but this, uh, this, this fact that these social media companies are coming together, um, uh, and, and what, what the appearance of colluding, um, you know, with government stuff is, we got to break that up. Um, I, I understand that they're a private company, but, you know, again, when it, when it infringes on free speech, uh, for the regular uh, American, um, you know, I would, I'd be in support of any legislation that pushes back on that. Okay. Um, in terms of uh, emergency power reform, have any have you looked into that at all? We have a COVID emergency. Governors were able to go for years, and they'd have dictatorial powers, bypassing democracy, can- closing churches and gyms and schools and weddings and funerals and canceling medical procedures. And now there's word Joe Biden wants to declare a national climate emergency, which NBC News says would give him COVID-like powers over the economy and regulation. Um, for two questions. Do you have what do you think about emergency power reform? And what do we do wrong during COVID in terms of lockdowns and all that? How do we avoid a repeat of that? Well, it's getting the right thing to actually, you know, have good leadership for selfless service over power. That whole 2020 with all these governors locking down churches and gyms is absolute travesty. And I think it'll be um, a, a lasting impact for years and years to come as, as the wrong way to do things. I mean, do we believe in the Constitution anymore? I mean, I wrote the book, Decline and Decay of the U.S. Constitution, yeah. but do we really understand what the Constitution represents? It's almost like we forget about it. Um, you know, you're a governor, you want to institute all these powers and executive orders. It's not law, it's not passed by the state legislature, it's just an executive order. Uh, but we're going to, we're going to, sna- that's not the right way to do things. That's not the way the government is supposed to work. That's not the way our Constitutional Republic and our founders envision things. Uh, but just to lock things down, mandating masks and, and closing down churches and, and school gyms and hurting small business owners um, is an absolute travesty. And I hope we don't do it again. I hope we don't go down that path. But, um, you know, I, I can't say in a full confidence that, you know, that won't happen again. But, I, yeah. you know, it just proves that we don't we haven't learned our lessons. Um, so, Yeah. Uh, what about the things like defund the police? That's a relatively new phenomenon. I mean, I remember 2020 with George Floyd, that came out, defund the police. And we found out within a year that it didn't quite work. But what's your position on that? And how do you, you know, you uh, how do you how do you make how do you make these big cities actually fund the police? I mean, San, someone like San Francisco, they don't seem to care that, you know, even no businesses even want to have a conference there anymore because of the way the cities are run and with crime and rampant homelessness, even the Hollywood celebrities like Susan Sarandon. What do we do about that? Even though that's not necessarily a federal issue, that's a local, but it seems like the liberals in the big cities have no problem living like that for uh, for the most part. Well, you know, you know how, how you do that, the community actually live there, especially, you know, if you talk about big cities, the African-American community, they absolutely, absolutely want law enforcement. They need law enforcement to protect themselves, yeah. uh, protect the, the businesses that are in there. So absolutely, uh, you know, we see that even in D.C., uh, look what's happening in D.C. with the the high crime rates. You have congressmen, you know, representatives yeah. being shake, sh- you know, shook down and uh, you know, carjacked or whatever, whatever it is. You know, we're talking about in D.C. and you got the D.C. council that that wants the national guard to come in. Well, what would happen if you just fund the fund and support the law enforcement? You know, uh, so you know, 
law enforcement, good law and order, it, it works. Okay, it's there to protect the citizen, the citizenry. Um, so it, it affects the, those communities. And, and uh, you know, I argue that, you know, I'm from Baltimore originally, grew up in Baltimore. Um, and, you know, that 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 city is rampant, high crime rate. Um, and, and so uh, that community absolutely wants law enforcement. We got to we got to fund the police. You know, we see what happens when you don't when you don't do that. And it just affects the community itself. And what about the other thing that's popped up sort of as the same result is the critical race theory, which they deny exists, but that's showing up in textbooks in schools across the country. I mean, mostly public schools, but um, what would you, what would a policy be on that? How do we, how, is that, how dangerous to that is America? The idea that you know, America is founded by racists, for racists, it's white supremacists, um, and everything in the world today is divided by race. Uh, it, it, what can we do about that? And how do you, how do you change curriculums in schools? Yeah, so a state issue. I think Virginia's done a great job at pushing back on that. I think Florida's done a great job at put at pushing back on that. At the federal level, you know, uh, I, yeah, I, I would do everything I, I could if I was a representative to, to dismantle and disrupt what I could at the Department of Education. Get it out of 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 you know um, the whole business. You know, it's a state issue. Education to me is a state issue. Um, there's just too much big government involved in in and pushing down this this type of narrative um we got to get back to you know, good civics um i think in, in our in our education system what it means to be an american uh what did it mean to storm the beaches of normandy who amelia Earhart was uh what did those 30 seconds over tokyo actually mean yeah. what is it about uh you know america that that matters we got to get you know good good civics but history right we, we got it history is, is the history we can't change history it's the past we can look look at the past look at the lessons learned and continue to move forward uh, but rewriting history tearing down statues that, that's that's totalitarianism in my opinion and we got to get out of that so virginia's done a great job a lot of organizations that i've worked with here on the ground um in virginia uh, are, are really leading the, the effort um pushing back uh, some of the school boards you know i've talked to a lot of school board candidates as we had off-year elections last year in virginia uh a, a lot of school boards were, were saying hey we're, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna push back on any of this stuff let's just get back to the basics reading writing and arithmetic right so that's what we got to do in a competitive world um you know, if you look at china you know they're focused on technology the building the technical skills what are we doing over here we're it seems like we're more focused on social re-engineering projects um, that actually delivering capabilities and, and skills that these kids are going to need in the future in a competitive world. We've got to get back to that. So we need school board candidates to actually have the, the moral and political courage to step up and push back on it. All right. Well, we got to take a break. We're talking with Jeffrey Sachs, the decline and decay of U.S. constitutional order. We'll be right back after these messages. We'll talk a little bit about uh, transgenderism and, of course, the threat of China and foreign policy a little bit as well. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malsberg. Hello, everyone, and I hope you had a wonderful and Merry Christmas. Hey, did you happen to catch our Vice President Kamala Harris before the holiday speaking on MSNBC about next year's election and what it means? I think all of these issues are important to voters who are going to be going to the polls in November, and, and they will make their decisions, obviously, um, but there are a lot of critical issues at stake. And, you know, every election cycle, we talk about this is the most election of our lifetime. Lawrence, this one is. This one is. What? Did she say this is the most important, the most consequential, the most anything? Nope, she did not. You know, every election cycle, we talk about this is the most election of our lifetime. 
Lawrence, this one is. This one is. And this is one of the freedoms she claims is at stake next November. The freedom to just be. The freedom to just be. So the woman who's a heartbeat away from the presidency says this is the most election ever in our lifetime and gives you some cockamamie freedom. I mean, God help us all. Thanks for giving me a minute. And don't forget to tune into my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern, right here on TNT. When the world's endangered animals need help most, when their lives are at greatest risk, when they would otherwise be lost, the International Fund for Animal Welfare is there, taking action to rescue the animals we love, to protect them and their threatened natural habitats. But the danger to animals the world over is growing, and the need for your help has never been more urgent. On land, you'll help stop poachers from threatening and killing elephants and big cats for the illegal wildlife trade. In the oceans, you'll help rescue dolphins, whales, and seals from deadly hazards. And you'll help rescue, rehabilitate, and release vulnerable animals when disasters strike. Here at home and around the world, we can't do this work without you. See how you can help animals and people thrive together at joinifall.org. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Welcome back to Unleashed. This is Mark Morano. We're talking with Jeffrey Sachs, the author of The Decline and Decay of the U.S. Constitutional Order. Okay, uh, I understand you have an event with Riley Gaines, uh, the swimmer who was knocked out of the number one position, or she actually tied, uh, with a biological male. Uh, first of all, tell us about that event in Virginia, and also tell us about transgenderism. Can a man become a woman? Yeah, so I appreciate it, Mark. Um, the Save America Rally, the Great Virginia Comeback, uh, next Thursday, January 4th. From 11 to 1 in Fredericksburg, Virginia at the Silk Mill. Everybody's invited. Make the drive. Uh, you're not going to want to miss this. This is not like any type of typical uh, political rally or whatever have you. Uh, but my friend Riley will be there and she's going to be discussing all the great uh, efforts that she's been doing. Uh, you know, she just recently testified on the Hill about Title IX. Um, and she's really the new uh, face of the women's movement here of our time. Um, she's done a lot of great work. Uh, but again, Save America Rally next Thursday, January 4th from 11 to 1 at the Silk Mill in Fredericksburg. Don't uh, you don't want to miss it. Uh, but transgender in Title IX, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not against, you know, transgender and all that stuff. It's not about that. It's about saving women's sports. You know, they fought for such a long time. They pour their blood, sweat yeah. and tears into being the best competitive athletes possible to have that you know, taken away. And we just can't. Uh, have mediocre male athletes transitioning to a, a portal um, and getting involved in women's. We just saw, uh, I think it was a, a track star that actually uh, finished like 19th or something uh, in the male category and went over, transitioned uh, into the women's sports and actually uh, yeah, beat the beat the the, the record. Uh, we got to get out of that. You know, women have fought so hard um, to get to the point where, where they are now. Uh, we got to save women's sports. And Riley, uh, has been the change champion to kind of lead that effort. Um, and she has, I mean, she has got so much moral and courage and she's leading, leading the way. Yeah, she really has been. Uh, I got to meet her at an event in June in uh, North Dakota. 
uh, and she gave a phenomenal talk on her story. J just a broader question. You have the transgender, you have uh, the critical race, you have the, the COVID theater, the masking of you know first graders and all that in school and the social distancing. And all of this seemed to just come at defunding the police all at once. Is this almost like a psych psyop or was this pre-planned in a way? Like where are all these these ideologies that seem so crazy pop up out of nowhere and suddenly go mainstream within a space of a few years? How do you think that happened? Is there yeah, who's behind it and how do we you know and what's the larger picture there? Because it just seems like pretty much since COVID, all three of these accelerated incredibly. I think it's just a um, years and years and years of indoctrination into our uh, academia institutions. I think that's what where the, most of this stuff is stemming from. And if you look at uh, the pro-Hamas, pro-Palestinian uh, protesters that are all throughout our campuses now, all throughout the nation, it's just years and years and years of indoctrination in our academia institutions. And we got to get that under under wraps. You know, if I was in, the, you know, uh, a representative in, in, in Congress, I would really be pulling the money back. If you're receiving a federal grant, if you're receiving any type of federal funding um, and you have protesters that are that are anti-Semitic and and, you know, uh, doing what they're doing on campuses, I pull I pull the funding immediately. Uh, you know, enough of the games. Uh, but, you know, we got to We got to I think it's just it's just indoctrination is, is what's going on. And I think it really started out in the, out of the 60s generation. And if you look at the at yeah. folks that have come out of the 60s generation are now leading our corporations, they're leading our military, they're leading our, um, you know, religious sector. They're, they're out throughout the whole institutions. Um, and I think that's where the movement's coming from. It's just indoctrination. Um, you can call it whatever you want. Call it Marxist, call it uh, totalitarianism, call, call it whatever you want. Uh, but it's destroying this country from within. Yeah. All right. Well, how, now let's talk about the administrative state, the rise of the administrative state. You know, we have so many, as we mentioned, COVID, the, all these consequential decisions made without an ounce of democracy. And of course, now they've banned gas powered cars. We never, Congress never voted on that. They're, they're going after restricting meat eating, which Congress never voted on that. Uh, explain a little bit about your, your war against the administrative state. What is it? How do we fight it? And how bad is it? Well, I touch on this in the book when I get into the rule of law and the separation of powers. And the, the case that I always bring up is the Patriot Act that George W. Bush used um, after 9-11. Uh, and it was used for the intent to go after terrorists, folks that wanted to do us harm. Uh, but we've seen that morph into other things. You know, we talk about the FISA, which, you know, I'm really, uh, really concerned about how the, how the FISA uh, clause was in the, the NDAA that was just passed by the the, the House and the, the Senate. So, you know, I'm really concerned about that. We've got to get FISA under control. Uh, but it's the rise of the administrative state as far as non-elected policymakers and all type of bureaucrats that are throughout our, all our government um, that are that are have more influence on on legislation and policies in your life than than elected officials. You know, they're not elected. They, they're not on the ballot box, but yet they have all these, um, you know, the power to to shape policy. Um, so, you know, in favor and, and kind of reining some of that in and, and let's look at your budgets. Let's look at the positions. Um, you know, really the OPM needs a complete overhaul. You know, if you have a redundant position throughout our government, let's, let's take a look at that. Let's, let's cut that back a little bit. Uh, less government, uh, is, is, is what I would be in favor of, um, cause less government means, um, less infringement on your individual liberties, more freedom for you. Um, so that's what, you know, that, that's what concerns me greatly is about the rise of the administrative state. And, you know, all these executive orders that come that come out, uh, we see it's just challenging in the courts. Um, you know, it just seems like we want to we want the Supreme Court. We want all these into these uh, the lower courts, you know, the appellate courts and, and everything 
to legislate from the bench. And that's not what they're they're supposed to do. They're supposed to just call balls and strikes and interpret the law. It's what they're it's what they're there for. It's what the judicial branch is there for. Um, but you know, we got to get into we got to get into reining that in a little bit um, with the executive orders as well. You know, Congress got to do their job and 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 go legislate. Let me ask you a question about Congress. It seems like, especially anyone in leadership or public life for a while, everyone becomes millionaires uh, when they somehow, especially the more successful, the longer. There's a whole movement now to stop senators and congressmen from buying stock options. I think there's a whole thing with Nancy Pelosi and selling a stocks, the timing, whether they get insider word because of their connections and all the wealth that they can grow. Um what do you think about that? Do you think there's far too many people in uh, elected office in Washington who just literally are there for self uh, self aggrandizement as opposed to uh, you know actually serving the people? Uh, my friend, you hit you hit the nail on the head. You hit you absolutely <laughs> hit the nail on the head. Uh, you know, I, I'm a firm believer of term limits. We absolutely need term limits. We don't need folks in D.C. for you know long periods of time. Uh, you know, if you're in there longer, uh, it's just seems like this this corruption grows goes further and further and further but we need leaders especially in 2024 that are there um for you know selfless service over over self um branding you know per se um that that's 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 what we need in congress we need those type of leaders um so uh again term limits absolutely works um so that that's what i'd be a, a, in favor of yeah you got to get out of that and, and any type I, of insider legislation absolutely needs to happen we can't have that yeah in terms of term limits, i was big i guess back in the early maybe it was i just want to say ross perot's era or i guess the 90s i was always back and forth i ultimately favor term limits but then the argument against it is of course well then the staff will become more powerful well then maybe we should limit the staff too but it's a it's a tough battle uh, uh and the problem is how do you ever pass term limits how does congress ever vote itself to limit itself that's that's the problem i don't know that it could ever happen because of that you really need a populist movement to make that happen uh, it's a it's a tough one <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I don't think you're ever going to get those in power to vote vote for for not power. But there's a big movement of convention of states and Article Five and all that yes. stuff um, that that folks are working on. But uh, you know, again, candidates that are running for for federal office that's a social contract with with the electorate. You know, term limits. Uh, you know, you only get two years in the house. That's not a lot of time. You know, you got to get up there and you got to work. I go be a firewall, not attend DC cocktail parties and softball games. You know, you got to get to work. Yeah. Now, as an Army veteran and uh, uh, let's talk foreign policy, there's a whole movement afoot of, you know, you sort of have the Vivek Ramaswamy and then Ron DeSantis is sort of in the middle. And then you have the Nikki Haley wing, um, a foreign policy. I would say Donald Trump is more. Where do you fall as a you know, as a political philosophy? In other words, was Iraq war necessary? Was Afghanistan war necessary? Did you favor all other bombing, other military campaigns? Do you support what Nikki Haley is saying about going into Iran, or are you more cautious? Where do you stand on America's, uh, you know, in terms of military intervention? Yeah, there's nothing more uh, serious than when we talk about sending our sons and daughters to war. Um, you know, sending sending our sons and daughters to war, which you know we've done over the last twenty years. You know, I've deployed multiple times. Uh, it's serious business. It's serious stuff. And we can't take can't take that for granted. Um, look, uh, if you look at the Trump administration, you look at all the years that, that you know, the, the, the four years, you know, we weren't involved in a major conflict. We were actually downsizing. We we're getting ready to leave Afghanistan. You know, we were pulling back from Iraq. 
you know, North Korea was under control. Iran was under control. Um, China was still out there doing their thing, but they were, for, for the most part, they were under control. We were starting to do trade deals with them and get our, you know, our economy was booming. Um, but I, I, I'm, I'm not uh, in favor of in intervention. Um, you know, when it comes to our absolute security, uh, I, I'd be in favor of that. But look at our own southern border right now. And you look around the world, but you look at our own southern border. And you look what's what's happening yeah. right now. You got another what ten to twelve thousand eight ten to twelve thousand folks that are coming a caravan that, that's already coming. We had twelve thousand cross the border, which is you know has never happened before. What a couple of weeks ago, um, it's just travesty. It's humanitarian crisis that are on the border. It's it's a national security issue. And you got folks coming in on the terror watch list um, every single day. I mean, so you got to take a look at that, and you got to shore up our own house first before we start focusing on other areas. Um, you know, I saw firsthand what it was like to be in Iraq and and Afghanistan. Um, and, and it's, again, it's a tough business. You know, I, I didn't have a vote. Um, the order was given. We went, we went out. Uh, but that's some serious business. Uh, but it, it requires leadership, it requires strong leadership. And I'm, a, I'm in favor of a strong national defense and peace through strength mentality. Um, but we, we got to get it under control. All right, well, in terms of uh, Ukraine, the Biden administration uh, really push the Ukraine aid. And uh, there's a lot of talk now where Russia now is making an alliance with China and it may have backfired. Would you have in Congress, uh, I don't want to be like, I don't want to grill you like that, but do you generally support uh, aid to Ukraine? And do you support that, that war effort from the United States in terms of the congressional military aid that they've been giving? Uh, I, I, I think just is car blanche to continue to funding. I would not be in favor of sending more money to Ukraine. There's, there's gotta be some type, I mean, you gotta look at our Southern border first. Again, you gotta clean up your yeah. own house before you can start just sending money, spending money to Ukraine um, over and over and over again. Um, so no, let's get a border deal. Let's secure our border. Let's fund the wall. Let's give the border patrol what they need uh, to go and, and handle that situation. More attorneys, more judges, whatever it is. Let's get our own border secured and then we're okay uh i i guess we're coming up to the final china we didn't get the chance to talk about that but you know we have china with a worry about an agricultural land monopoly in the u.s buying up farmland they're buying up meat processing they're buying up land near they're trying to buy up land near military installations you have the entire green agenda making the U.S. more reliant on China. You have China buying up Africa. You have China with the lowest environmental and human rights standards, basically with one of the, you know, dominating the global uh, production, especially with energy supplies and everything. What would your policy be toward China? How much of a threat are they and how do we deal with China? All right. Well, I think we may have lost Jeffrey. Let's see if it's temporarily or not. Um, just on the point of asking him my final question about China and the China threat. Uh, the rumors are that Jeffrey Sachs might be running for a political office sometime soon. He mentioned the event next week with uh, Riley Gaines talking about um, she's, you know, just testified on the Hill about the transgender agenda and about keeping men out of women's sports, uh, which I find ironic because there were such champions for decades about making women's sports uh, more, you know, be the hallmark of universities and make sure they're properly funded. And then all of a sudden, overnight, men are competing and beating women in a lot of these sports, which just it's it's crazy and stuff. Anyway, we want to thank our guest Jeffrey Sachs, uh, the author of the of the book, uh, excuse me, Decline and Decay of the U.S. Constitutional Order. This has been Unleashed with Mark Morano. See you tomorrow.